One thing that we typically think of when we think of adoption, and that's kind of our focus today, uh, uh, we think of adoption, we think of some parents that find a child to love, right? You've got parents and they, they go, maybe they go halfway across the world, maybe they go um, to their to their, maybe they work with a local um, center that deals with kids whose parents have and and in in the course of doing that, they begin to um, they begin to find that their hearts go out to a specific child, and so they start the legal paperwork and the process. They go through all the things that they have to do. If it's someone overseas, they've got to coordinate with that country, and they they have to incur a lot of expense and spend time and effort and energy in doing it. And sometimes sometimes you end up having to. Uh, spend months and months or years even trying to complete this adoption process. That's what we think of, but in the ancient world, adoption wasn't like that. In the ancient world, adoption was more of a vehicle for doing certain legal things. So, for example, a woman, once a, a guy and a woman are going to get married, what often happen is the parents, uh, the father of the, the groom-to-be would adopt the daughter into his family. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because she now is going to get part of the inheritance through her husband of the father's household. And so it makes sense to have her part of the family so you keep it in the family, right? If something happens to the son, then the daughter is part of the family. And so it would kind of facilitate the legal transfer of property. A slave that is going to be freed would often not just be freed, but be adopted by his master so that he would share in the inheritance. Uh, we read of this in Abraham. Abraham's worried because he's 90-something years old. God given him a son, and God says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham says, are you crazy? I'm old. <laughs> you know, this isn't going to work. Who is my, who's my estate going to go to? It's going to have to go to my servant because I don't have a male heir to pass it on to. And what he's referring to is the practice of adopting your servant as your son so that you have someone to pass the inheritance to, someone to give your estate to after you go. Sometimes it would be a person adopting a child. Maybe it would be a grandparent or a cousin, an uncle. Mordecai and Esther is an example in the Bible. Sometimes it's someone completely unrelated. Pharaoh's daughter finds a basket in the river. She opens it up and there's a baby crying. Moses, right? And she adopts him as her son. By the time Paul comes around, this idea of adoption has existed for a long, long time, but in a very different way than we normally think of it. It was transactional. It was legal. It was in many cases, cold. But Paul sees something better. Paul does this frequently. Uh, The word hagios is an example. Hagios is the Greek word for saint is normally how it's interpreted. But in that time, it didn't mean saint. It just means someone who was set apart for a certain purpose. So you would talk about a hagios. It could be a priest that was dedicated to the worship of a pagan god. They're not going to worship any of the other gods. They're only going to worship one god to whom they're dedicated. Paul says, you know, that idea of being dedicated to the true God carries with it a whole big other aspect. 
aspect, the holiness that comes along with serving God. Be holy for I am holy. And so he attaches, he takes this word, this idea in his culture, and he attaches a whole new level of meaning to it. He does the same with adoption. And this morning, I want us to consider what does it mean for us to be adopted by faith? This vision that we're laying out, that, that I believe that God has called our church to be God's family, the first aspect of that is how do you get into the family? We're not born into the family of God by a natural birth. In fact, Jesus says, you are so screwed up in your first birth, you need to be born again. Yeah, boy, isn't that good news? It is, but it's not, not exactly the easiest thing to hear first, is it? Your first birth was so messed up, you gotta have another birth, a completely different kind of birth. But the idea is we come into God's family not based on what we do, but based on what God does. He adopts us. And Paul takes this idea of Ephesians and runs with it. And I want us to look at a couple of different aspects of adoption to figure out what does it mean for us to be adopted by faith? Not just what does it mean for us to be in God's family, but how we get in God's family. And that's by his adoption. There's, a, there's three different passages that we're going to look at in particular um, to where Paul, Paul really pulls this idea out. And I want you to consider the past, present, and future of adoption. Okay? So there's kind of a past to God's adopting us. There's a present reality of God's adoption. And then there's a future reality. And I want us to look at the three of those. And the first thing deals with the past, and it's that God prepares us for adoption. We find this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we see here that God prepares us for adoption. God prepares us. Now, th this is not something we normally think of in adoption, right? But there is a preparation. We look at the preparation of the parents doing all the legal work, spending all the money and the time and the effort to make the adoption happen, showing that they are fit to adopt a child, that they can afford to adopt this child, that they will love this child, they spend time with this child. Sometimes in foster parenting, and then foster parents end up becoming adopted parents. Other times, not that way in different ways. Sometimes they go across the world. They spend large amounts of money to go through the process. They spend great effort, spend much time in prayer, hoping that God would lead them in the right way. Many times they start wanting to get a child and they end up with three or four because they're brothers and sisters and can't bear to separate them. Many times... They start with an idea of the kind of child they'd like and it ends up being a completely different child because they just capture their hearts. We think of the pre preparation of the parents, but we don't often think of the preparation of the child. You know, it takes a long time for a child, especially an older child, to be ready to be adopted. Some children are abused and neglected and the idea of adult loving them seems possible. Sometimes. 
the child necessarily abused, but is lonely. They may have been alone their whole life. May not have ever had anyone to love them and may not know what love looks like. Sometimes they have an idea of what love is. Sometimes they get glimpses of, see it in little pieces here and there. But to know the fullness of a love of parents who love you just because, who love you enough to choose you, that takes some getting used to. That's a good kind of getting used to, but it's still hard and it still takes time. So we see if God is going to adopt us, that he has to prepare us for that adoption. Now, I can look back on my life. I can look back to when I was six, seven, eight years old. In the years before I accepted Christ, I was nine when I gave my heart to Christ. I can look back at six, seven, eight years old, and I can see things that God was doing in my life to prepare me to know him. I can see parents who... who knew that I didn't belong in a public school special ed program. I had difficulty hearing. At six, my hearing was tested. I could hear on the level of a three-year-old. By the time I'm entering third grade, my school says he needs to be in special ed. My mom said, no, he doesn't. Pull me out of a public school, put me in a Christian school. Now, was that because she just was, was not going to have a special ed kid. She was too proud for that. No, she knew that that wasn't the right thing for me. God was working even in her at that point, even in my dad at that point, to say, no, 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 this is not what we're going to do. We're going to put him in a Christian school, a school where I would learn the Bible, where I would learn the books of the Bible, and I would learn the basic stories of Scripture, a school where I would begin to memorize Scripture and hide it in my heart that I might not sin against God. A school where I would come face to face with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that I wasn't getting in church because we weren't members of a church. A gospel that I wasn't getting at home because my parents, well, my mom didn't feel very confident to teach. And my dad, well, he wasn't a Christian. So where was I going to get this from? Well, God knew. God answered that. I could see the work God putting a certain teacher in my in fourth grade. I remember nothing else about this teacher except she's the one that helped me realize my need for a Savior. She didn't even lead me in the prayer. To this day, I wonder, why didn't you just kneel with me there and lead me in that prayer? But she didn't do it. It's okay. Turns out uh, at the foot or at the side of a bottom bunk bed in a double wide trailer is a perfectly good place to accept Christ. But I could see God working. I could see him moving. Him putting the places, the pieces into place so that, so that when I came to ask Christ to be my Savior, when I came to admit to God that I'm a sinner, to confess my sin before Him and ask for His forgiveness, ask for Him to love me enough to take away my sin and to be the master of my life, when I got to that point, it wasn't just out of the blue. God had been leading me there day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year leading me to the place where I would be ready to give my heart to Christ. And he does that with every single one of us. He prepares us for our adoption. He doesn't just call out of the blue, just yank us out of where we are. No, he leads us directly to him. It's God's eternal plan for God's eternal praise. Look back, look back in, in verses 4. Look, look at verse 4. He starts it, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. You want to know when God started preparing you for adoption? Before He started this place. It wasn't 
just God woke up one day, you're, you're, you're seven, and God says, oh, it's time for me to get started. No, 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 no. Before God even forms the world with the words of his mouth, he has already begun the process of preparing for your adoption. Before the foundation of the world. Now, a lot of people get mixed up with this chose and with this predestined and that kind of thing. I want you to think so much about what that word means as what it means. What, to what end does he choose? To what end does he predestine? Our adoption. Notice, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God does not just adopt us so that we can say, hey, we belong to Jesus. Look at us. He, he adopts us so that we will be like him. We will be holy as he is holy. That we would be blameless as he is blameless. As the perfect spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So ought God's adopted children be perfect, spotless, blameless. Now, we can't achieve that. But and we can get closer and closer and we can try more and more. Harder and harder every single day. Until that day when he finally does finish the work that he started. We should be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse 5, he predestined us to what? For what? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God has chosen you. He didn't have to. He wanted to. Now, before you get too big-headed about that, it's not God's will that any should perish, but all should come. God offers us salvation, not because of us, but because of him. And so the adoption is based on him. It's what he does. The child doesn't do much of anything in the adoption. It's the parent that takes the initiative. It's the parent that does the work. It's the parent that goes through the effort. It's the parent that pays for it. It's the parent that does everything necessary to ensure the adoption happens. It's the parent, not the child. It's the parent. God, we think, look how great we are. What we should think is, look how great God is. He's the one who has chosen us and predestined us and, and, and brought us along into this adoption for the purpose of his will. It's for his purpose. It's not for our purpose, though we get a lot of benefits out of it. Amen? It's not for our purpose. It's for his purpose. Verse 6, God's eternal plan for God's eternal praise to the praise of his glorious grace. See, when he adopts us, when he changes us, when he makes us his sons and fashions us in his image and makes us look like his son, Jesus Christ, when he takes us from who we are to who we need to be, God is glorified and praised as a result. And that's what he's after. That's why he adopts us by faith. He doesn't adopt us by faith so that we can be awesome. He adopts us by faith so that we can bring him praise. Now, that's a totally different kind of mindset. That's the kind of mindset that says, it's not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your great faithfulness. It's the kind of mindset that says, I am not the end of all things. There's a lot of people today that think that they live for themselves. And in all practicality, they do. But they completely miss the whole point of living because we're not here for us. We're here for him to the praise of his glorious grace. God prepares us for adoption. He sets this into motion long before we ever come to know Christ. He prepares for, for adoption. He performs 
our adoption. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see this performance play out. Listen. Listen to life before. Listen to life before. In fact, if I were to say one word that would describe us before Christ, it's a four-letter word. Dead. You used to be dead. Look, look, listen in, in Ephesians 2. And you were dead. Well, that's to the point. <laughs> dead how? Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Boy, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? A dead guy. And that's who we were. Dead in dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We think we're charting our own path, but in reality, we're just following the spirit of the age. We think that we're leaders. In reality, we're just following the course of this world. We think we're individuals, but in reality, we look just like everybody else. Dead. Oh, sure, you don't look dead. You're not pale. Your body's not stiff. You're not You're not zombies while... Uh, you know, you're not looking like that, but you are dead. You're dead spiritually because you don't know Christ. You're dead spiritually because you haven't had that kind of a birth, because you haven't been adopted into the family of God. That's life before Christ. You used to be dead. And then as if Paul senses the tension, as if he writes those words and they weigh so heavy. You ever... You ever be in a place that's so cold, not just feel the cold on your skin, but it's almost heavy on your heart is so cold? You ever been in a place like that? You ever been in a place that is so, like you can, you can feel the tension in the room. You hear a statement at the table, family dinner, and you know it's about to get really bad. Because somebody has said something they shouldn't have said. And now somebody else is going to respond. And you can cut the tension with a knife. There is a tension here in this passage. Listen to it again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you what? in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you feel the tension in the room as Paul is writing this? As it's being read to a church in a city that has loved Paul and, and ministered to Paul and ministered to by Paul for three years of his life. Do you feel the tension? There's a tension here because there is a tension in life. When you are in this point in your life, when you don't know Christ and all you know is how to walk around in the course of the world. All you know is how to follow the Spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. All you know is to be children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When that is who you are, there is tension in your heart that knows this isn't right. No matter how much I try to fake it, no matter how much I try to smile and act like everything's okay, something's not right. And you know it. Deep down in your soul, you know it. 
That's what makes, that's what makes this adoption so powerful. The tension, that place of knowing that things are not the way they ought to be. It's like a piece of music where it's building up and it's building up and then, and then you hit this one part, there's this note that's disharmonic. It's not, it doesn't line up right and it's loud and it's big and then there's silence right after it. The tension of that moment before the next chord resolves. That's what it's like. It's like that perpetual tension, living life without Christ. Now, why don't I stress this? Because I want you to feel it again. You felt it before. Think back. I can think back to my nine-year-old self not being able to rest because I see a picture on a movie of Pilgrim at the cross with this heavy backpack of sin on his back and as he kneels, that backpack falls off and rolls down the hill behind him. I see that picture in my mind and there's a tension there because I know that I don't understand what that means. I might know it in here, but I'm still carrying that weight on my back. And then the next two words change everything. See, you were once dead, but God has made you alive. Verse 4, but God. The minor chord is now a major chord. That seventh that's hanging there, it's finally resolved. Speaking your language. That tension that you could cut with a knife, it's like it dissipates. But God. You see, before Christ, I was hopeless. Sure, I was nine, like I was in a terrible condition, not, not, not by many standards. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't running around with women. I wasn't doing all the bad things that we hear so many people talk about before they meet Christ. I wasn't, I mean, I was the kid that tucked my shirt in without being asked to. I, I was a pretty good kid, but there was still the tension in my heart because I knew that I wasn't right with God. I knew that I didn't know what it was like to have my sins forgiven. And boy, did I have plenty of them even at nine. But God changed everything. You see, this adoption, I've said it before, and I want to keep stressing it because I I, I want us to be clear on this. It is God's doing. It's what He has done. If Miss Patsy were to play that disharmonic chord, you could do nothing in your mind to harmonize it. You could do nothing to bring it to a resolution. You could do nothing to turn it into a chord where everything works together perfectly. Why not? Because you're not the one at the piano. Only the one at the piano can make that chord harmonize. Only the one at the piano can make that a right chord by changing the notes that are being played. So God is the only one who can change the notes being played in your heart, in the piano of your heart. He is the only one that can bring your disharmonic chords into harmony. He is the only one who can take that tension and dissipate it with two words, but God. By what He does, He is the one that can bring us right with Him. But God, be rich in mercy. Yeah, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't care about those riches. That richness is much more powerful. Because of the great love with which he loved us, for God so loved the world, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you were dead. What did dead guys do? Rot. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. See, this is the God that walks into a valley of dry bones with Ezekiel and says, hey, hey, son of man, can these bones live? 
Can you imagine me and Ezekiel? He's sitting there saying, well, okay, all right. The, the answer should be yes, but I, I don't know where you're going with this. So I'm just going to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I can believe that these bones would ever live again. I don't know if I believe that these dry bones, bones that have been dead for so long, there's no more marrow left in them. Bones that have been dead for so long that it'd be difficult to get even DNA off of them. I don't know that they can live again. I mean, maybe they could. I mean, you can do whatever, but I, I don't know. God says prophesy. You see, God is the God who makes dead things live. He creates universes out of nothing, people. Bringing a dead guy back to life, that, that's, he just does that to show off. He does. He brings us back to life. He brings us to life that we've never known because all of our lives we haven't been alive. We've been dead. And now suddenly we're alive. Dead in sin, dead in our trespasses, and now we are made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with him. So we were dead, now we're alive. We were walking in sin and trespasses. Now we're raised up with him. We were following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. But now we are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were of the world, now we're of heaven. We're completely new people. And we're completely new because of what God has done, not because of what I've done, not because of what you've done. Do you understand why it's so important for us as a church to lay the foundation to say, if we are to be God's family, it starts by being adopted by faith in Christ Jesus. That's what makes us family. We're not family because we all look alike. We don't. Some of y'all have more hair than me. Some of y'all have less hair than me. Most of you are much older than me. Some of you are younger than me. Many of you don't yell nearly as much as I do. Some of you like Auburn. Some of you like Alabama. Some of you are weird and like Penn State. Okay, me. That's it. I don't imagine we would get along with much of anything if it weren't for Christ. We are a family because of Christ. We are a family because of what God has done in us through Jesus Christ. And I lay that foundation first. Before we can do anything of what God wants us to do in this world, we have to know who we are in Christ. And we have to live according to who we are in Christ. Our lives ought to demonstrate the adoption that's happened. Notice the difference in the way that we act before and after. You heard the before, now let's look at the after. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Our lives ought to demonstrate the kindness of God. Not only that, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. And then we stop as though that's the end of the passage. But that's not the end. What does verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. When God creates us, when God adopts us into his family, he doesn't do so just so that we can talk about how awesome we are and what a great family we have. He does so so that we will act like his family. God expects us to demonstrate his adoption 
for a world of orphans that desperately need a family. You used to be dead, but God has made you alive. So can you look like it? By the way, those works, yeah, they were prepared in advance too, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has not only prepared us for adoption, he's prepared the works that we are to do once we're adopted. But you know, that's, that's the present of adoption. There is a future of adoption as well. There's a past in which God prepares us to be adopted. God's eternal plan for His eternal praise. There is a present in which we are adopted where we were once dead, but now we are presently, currently alive. But there's also a future of adoption. And we find that back in chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. Not only does God prepare us for adoption, and not only does God perform our adoption, he also perfects our adoption. It's almost like, if only there was some kind of verse that would say something about God finishing what he starts, you know, like, he who began a good work in you would be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus, something like that. Oh yeah, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, I almost forgot the best part. This is Paul. What does he say at the beginning? And I'm sure of this. There's no doubt. Because of what God has done, we can rest assured in what he's going to do. This is the God who fulfills his promises. This is a God who fulfills, not just half fills. The glass ain't half empty or half full with God. It's all the way full because he does everything he promises to do. And that means in us, he's going to finish what he started. He's going to perfect our adoption. Not only is God going to adopt us now and then kick us to the side of the curb later. In fact, it was Roman law. And they saw this because, because in the ancient world they didn't do this, but as, as, as Rome came to power, they recognized that, you know, there ought to be some protection for the person who is adopted. And so one of the Roman laws was that if you adopt someone, you could not under any circumstances disinherit them. God will finish what he starts. If he started this process, he's going to finish it. And that means that God's spirit guarantees our inheritance. Look with me in verse chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance. So God has adopted us, and as part of that adoption, we're now heirs. We have an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will... Notice, that's not who tries to work things according to the counsel of his will. That's not who considers counsel with many different advisors and then takes the best advice. This is one who knows the perfect plan and who completes the perfect plan according to the purpose of his will. He not only completes it, he plays it perfectly. That tells me that he has the power to do what he says he's going to do. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He's talking about Jews. He's talking about those who have accepted Christ. And then he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You're sealed with God's Holy Spirit that guarantees the inheritance. I don't even need to preach about that, do I? That just, that just lands so well. And oh yeah, his glory. 
God has adopted us. He has prepared us for adoption. He has performed our adoption, and one day He will perfect our adoption. The same Spirit Christ through whom we are adopted by faith is the same one that will continue in us, working on us, sanctifying us, making us more and more like God every day of our lives until one day He completes that work and gives us the inheritance which He has promised to us. That's what it means to be adopted by faith. So what difference should it make? I'll tell you what difference it should make. First of all, we need to make sure we're part of the family and we're not sitting on the outside pretending to be family when we're really just intruders. Secondly, it means we ought to look like we're adopted by God. James has the unfortunate um, aspect of looking a lot like me. Um, he is hes very similar to me in his facial features and the color of his hair, the way he walks, and many of my mannerisms. He's smart like I was for his own good sometimes, but I was never like that. Sometimes, sometimes we look like daddy because of our genetics. But in this family, we're called to look like daddy in our character and in our actions. Are you loving people the way that God loves them? Are you serving people with all your heart, not begrudgingly? Are you giving of yourself, your time, your resources, your effort, your talents, your attention? Are you giving those things? Are you forgiving people? who do you wrong? Are you giving them the room to grow, even if it means they'll hurt you in the process and you have to forgive them? Are you looking like daddy more and more as the days go by? For those of us who are already adopted in faith, let's live in light of that adoption and not be children of wrath, but be children of light.